and welcome to History of the Great War episode 221. For the next three episodes, we're going to look at some of the events in the Middle East after the war. We touched on these events during the Versailles episodes, but we will focus more on two specific events, the 1919 Egyptian Revolution and the 1920 Iraqi Revolt. In March 1919, Egypt experienced one of the largest peasant revolts in the 20th century, and this revolt had one goal, independence from British rule. In 1920, a revolt with very similar goals would take place in modern-day Iraq, although at the time it was known as Mesopotamia. In both cases, the desires of the local people came into conflict with British imperial policy. The British had been basically in control of Egypt for years, and they had gained control of Mesopotamia during the war, control that had been affirmed by the Paris Peace Conference. The British were concerned about maintaining their control in the two areas, and especially in any actions by the local people that might result in a reduction of that control, because they were concerned that any decisions made that resulted in greater local autonomy might cause problems for the British in other parts of the world. If they allowed either area to gain their independence, then there were many other places that the British controlled that might see similar events. These concerns were then tied to the British idea of prestige and how they had to maintain face around the world to show that the British Empire was still unassailable. The events in both the Middle Eastern countries are interesting because they were caused by similar feelings among the people and they would result in similar outcomes, but the actual events of the revolutions would be quite different. In this episode, we will mostly focus on the events in Egypt before briefly discussing the situation in Iraq during and after the war. It has been quite some time since we discussed the events during the war in the Middle East, so I thought it might be appropriate to start with just a quick overview of what had happened. The Ottoman Empire, which in 1914 controlled much of the modern-day Middle East, entered the war in late 1914. The British were already in control of Egypt, and they would also land troops in Basra in modern-day Iraq in an attempt to march on Baghdad. The war in Mesopotamia would initially go very poorly for the British, with the disaster at Kut al-Amara seen as one of the greatest military disasters in the history of the empire. The disaster would cause the British to dedicate more resources to another effort, which would eventually capture Baghdad and bring most of Mesopotamia under British control. In 1917, there would be an advance by the British forces out of Egypt and into Palestine and Syria, and when the war ended in late 1918, the British, with maybe some French assistance, would be in control of all of the Ottoman territory south of Anatolia, which represented all of the modern-day Middle East. During these campaigns, they had made many promises to the Arab tribal leaders, which would cause problems for them later, especially in Iraq. During the Paris Peace Conference, the British would gain control in the form of mandates of both Mesopotamia and Palestine. In London, Palestine and Egypt were seen as important due to their position in the eastern Mediterranean and the control that they could exert over the all-important Suez Canal, which was a link between the European British Empire and India. This region had been important for the British for this very reason for many years. Mesopotamia was seen as very important for a new reason, oil. 
The First World War had seen the importance of oil, and especially the military applications of oil, drastically increase. By the end of the war, oil-powered vehicles on land, in the air, and at sea which were all integral parts of the militaries around the world. Tanks and airplanes were important weapons, and motor vehicles were growing in importance in the movement of men and materiel behind and on the battlefield. These concerns alone probably would have been enough for the British to make a play for control of Mesopotamia and its known oil reserves. But the most important impetus for these actions, at least from a military perspective, was the fact that by the end of the First World War, the entirety of the Royal Navy had switched to oil-burning ships. Before the switchover to oil, the Royal Navy had used coal burning for its steam power. The British Isles had some of the best coal in the world for this purpose, due to specific burn characteristics, but the islands had almost no intrinsic oil reserves. This transition by the Navy was a gamble, and it meant that the Navy had an acute need to maintain control of at least some part of the world with oil in it. This presented a risk to the Navy, but it was a risk that was seen as required by the benefits that oil provided to the Navy. Oil gave more energy per ton than coal, and it was much easier to just handle and store aboard the ships. With the transition to oil, the Navy was committing to needing a lot of the substance, because a single battlecruiser like the Renown, which was completed in 1916, could burn upwards of 1,400 tons of it in a single day. The importance of oil made it essential that the British find a way to more directly control oil supplies, and the largest of those that were available to for this control were in the Middle East. However, beyond the institution of the mandates during the Paris Peace Conference, which gave the British some level of control over Mesopotamia and the Middle East, overall British policy in the area was confused, at best. There are many different views in the British government about what should be done to ensure future control of these areas. On the one hand, there were those who I would call like hardcore imperialists who wanted to turn the new areas into classical colonies under absolute British control. On the other end of the spectrum were those who wanted to just create local governments that the British could have good relations with, both diplomatically and economically, maybe like a dominion model. Between these two extremes were many different views on how autonomous the local government should be. The years following the First World War would see official British policy shift from being closer to that hardcore imperialist mindset to being one that was more accepting of local power, although local power that was assured to be friendly to British interests. This shift was due to military and economic realities, which were put in stark relief by the revolts in Egypt and Iraq, and was not due to some realization in London that, hey, maybe imperialism isn't actually a good thing. Oil was an important factor in Britain's long-term plans for the Middle East, but Egypt was always important. Egypt had been part of the Ottoman Empire for hundreds of years, and it had been occupied by the British in 1882. This occupation had always been a balancing act, and in 1915, Egypt had been officially declared a protectorate of the British Empire. During the war, this new, more official relationship between Egypt and the British was workable, if only due to the massive presence of military in the region, although even with the number of soldiers present, there were still some actions taken by Egyptian nationalists against the British, who were seen as unlawful occupiers. After the war was over, on November 23, 1918, some Egyptian leaders approached the British High Commissioner, Reginald Wingate, with a demand for independence. These leaders were representatives of the Waft Party, which was a group made up of many former Egyptian ministers who had been in power before and during the war. The Waft Party gained in power during and after the conflict due to the conditions experienced by the people of Egypt during the First World War. 
During the war, the British leaders had sought to control the Egyptian economy. For example, they put a ceiling on cotton prices to keep them at a level acceptable to the rest of the empire, which demanded Egyptian cotton. They also put certain food export requirements in place. Now, these export quotas were combined with less domestic production due to wartime disruptions and far fewer food imports due to the demands of the armies in Europe to produce serious food shortages in Egypt. Shortages felt most strongly by poor Egyptians, as food shortages always are. An example of this could be seen in the treatment of cottonseed oil. Now, cottonseed oil was a critical source of food oil for poor Egyptians before the war. It was what they could afford because it was a byproduct of cotton production, and it was produced in large quantities in Egypt due to the export of Egyptian cotton. With food oil being short in many other areas around the world, large amounts of cottonseed oil were exported out of Egypt. This caused great hardship for the Egyptians, especially when combined with war-induced inflation, which just made everything more expensive. Hunger became a common feature of everyday life for most Egyptians. Hungry people are rarely happy people, setting the stage for the revolt. The catalyst for this dissatisfaction to turn into open revolt was provided by the British when on March 9, 1919, British leaders ordered the arrest of four leaders of the Waft Party. The Waft Party had been building relations with the peasants all over Egypt during the last years of the war, work that was required due to the fact that the Waft leadership was very different than the vast majority of its supporters. The Waft was led by those that were upper-class businessmen and politicians, and their supporters were mostly poor peasants and to bridge this class gap required concerted efforts to be made to grow support among common Egyptians. When the leaders were arrested, the fruit of these labors quickly became apparent, and their arrests were seen as a threat to the nationalist movement as a whole. The peasants went into action. The revolt would begin soon after the news of the arrests spread throughout the country. In the beginning, they took the form of spontaneous demonstrations staged throughout Egypt. These protests were often organized in cafes and mosques and, and churches all over the country, which had already been hotbeds for nationalist discussions and organizations. Almost all of the groups within Egyptian society were represented in these spontaneous protests. Muslims, cops, Christians were all protesting together. Both men and women would join in these protests. And when organized protests began a few weeks later, each group would have their own protests, including those specifically designed for women. Over the next month, protests would continue in major Egyptian cities, including Cairo. Along with these peaceful demonstrations, there were also violent ones. When the demonstrations first started, martial law was declared by the British authorities. In London, when news arrived of the events occurring in the country, General Allenby, the leader of the Palestinian campaign at the end of the war, was dispatched to take over for Wingate. Allenby had experience in the area and was seen as the best man for the job. The primary point of violence against British rule was against communication and transportation infrastructure. Rail lines were destroyed and telegraph lines were brought down. The British answered this violence with violence of their own, and they used this violence against local populations. It became common practice to burn the closest village to any rail network damage that was done. These actions were known to be problematic by British leaders, and there were active efforts to prevent news of the full scale of this violence from being communicated either inside or outside the country. One note to the British Foreign Office from Sir Ronald Graham would say, quote, I would advise that any communiques from Egypt dealing with the burning of villages, etc., should be carefully censored before publication, otherwise questions in Parliament are almost certain to arise. 
Another tactic that was tried by the British was to use airplanes to patrol the railways, and then to use machine guns if they saw anybody trying to do anything to them. This was just one manifestation of the British belief that the advent of air power made it possible to control territory with far fewer resources. Similar attempts would be made in Iraq, and both would mostly be unsuccessful. During this period that the British were trying to meet the violence of the revolt with more violence, the efforts to reduce the scale of the revolt would almost entirely fail. This caused Allenby and others to choose to release the waft prisoners on April 7th, and this act signaled a change in policy and would be the first steps towards ending the revolt. The Waft Party would begin working with the British, and for the next two years they would negotiate with British leaders, negotiations that would eventually lead to Egyptian independence. However, in the interim, the Waft would abandon the more radical actions that many Egyptians wanted. This was almost inevitable because the Waft leaders, they weren't radical revolutionaries. They were more than happy to work within the systems to solidify their political and economic power. They did not feel the need to fully remake Egypt. By once again working with the British, the power of the upper classes would grow in Egypt, and their power would make things difficult for the British during the years after 1919. Eventually, the British were forced to recognize that they could not really maintain control of Egypt in the same way that they had before, and this prompted them to begin discussing official Egyptian independence with Egyptian leaders. There were always problems with these negotiations, especially around British political uh, sort of needs that full military access always be granted. It was the one demand that both sides were on opposite sides of, and neither would compromise on. The move towards some form of Egyptian independence would jump forward due to the actions of General Allenby in February 1922. Essentially, being the one on the ground in Egypt and in control during the previous years, he knew exactly how unworkable the current situation was, and therefore he went to London and threatened to resign unless real steps were taken towards independence. This resulted in a declaration on February 18, 1922 from the British government which officially abolished the Egyptian protectorate, ended martial law in the country, and provided for Egyptian independence in all matters except for British imperial communications, the defense of Egypt, protection of foreign interests in Egypt, and anything to do with the Sudan region. Now obviously, these four points are big ones. Just the defense of Egypt implied full military access, and these four areas would cause huge problems for British and Egyptian relations until after the Second World War, eventually resulting in the Suez Crisis, but it was still a step forward in Egyptian independence. I like this summation of the results of the 1922 Declaration, which can be found in the Cambridge History of Egypt. Quote, for the Egyptians, reserved points notwithstanding, the 1922 declaration was a real achievement. While all of the attributes of sovereignty would be won only after further protracted struggle, administrative control now passed largely to Egyptian hands. But that the subsequent development of constitutional government was severely hampered by continuing British involvement was undeniable. It can be argued that protectorate status had lent clarity and a degree of legitimacy to British action in Egypt, that both occupation before the First World War and the blatant interference after 1922 lacked. For the British, the 1922 declaration marked a return to the preferred imperial methods of informal control and away from the unavoidable responsibility that the protectorate had represented." End quote. 
Basically, the British had removed much of their actual responsibility they had in Egypt, but they had preserved the ability to informally control Egypt. They would have military troops there the whole time, which made it pretty understandable why many Egyptians would not appreciate the arrangement. We now shift our focus to Mesopotamia, another area that was formerly controlled by the Ottoman Empire but which the British would now have control of. This control was first in place during the First World War as part of the military occupation. And during this occupation, the British were greatly assisted by the specific features of Arab society in the region, specifically the strength of local tribal leaders. Before the war, Ottoman power in the region had mostly been maintained not by strong central authority, but instead through good relations with these leaders. This had made the tribal society in Mesopotamia far more resilient than in other areas where it had mostly broken down by the time of the First World War. This feature made it easier for the British to gain some measure of control because they could work with these specific leaders, who already enjoyed the support of the local populace. It also allowed the British to play local leaders off of one another. If one sheik did not comply with British wishes or demands, then they could simply find another one nearby who would. British support for specific leaders would then shift local power in their favor, which made it almost mandatory that sheiks work with the British if they wanted to keep their position. This was especially critical during the war, since during that period, the British could back up any of their demands with the use of military force. The British did not solely use this force, though, to gain support among the sheiks. They also promised greater Arab independence after the war was over and better economic situations. They generally said that the British role in any arrangement after the war would be one of, quote, guidance. In normal parlance, this would mean the British would take an advisory role, but it meant something quite a bit different in the British imperial lexicon. During the last year of the war, there was a general realization among many of the local tribal leaders that the British control after the war was not going to be what they wanted. These leaders often really liked the Ottoman system from before the conflict, which gave them a good amount of local autonomy. The citizens of Iraq were also generally okay with being Ottoman subjects. Again, this was due to the general autonomy of local leaders, and this local autonomy quickly slipped away under British military rule. However, thoughts on independence from Ottoman or British rule were very diverse in Mesopotamia. This was due to just how diverse the people were there. The three vilayets, which were Ottoman provinces or states that made up uh, Iraq at this time, were very different, and the three million people that inhabited them belonged to several different religions and ethnicities. The previous levels of autonomy made these differences more apparent, and the British did not really understand how volatile the relations between the various groups really were, or that there was a growing anger and resentment against continued control of Arab affairs. The one thing I want to make very clear, though, is that the various groups in Iraq, while they, while they all resented British rule, often resented it for very different reasons. Some had economic, others religious, others xenophobic reasons, or countless other possible reasons. And just because they could agree that they did not want the British did not mean that they could agree with what should replace them. As part of British policy in the lead-up to the Paris Peace Conference, the government in London asked the civil commissioner of Mesopotamia, Arnold Wilson, to hold a plebiscite. The goal of this plebiscite was to make the views of the people known. It was also made clear in the messages around the plebiscite that it was not the definitive statement about the future of the region. That would be decided at the peace conference. This was an advisory plebiscite, I guess. 
This was definitely not a completely unbiased one either, and right from the beginning Wilson took measures to make sure that the correct result was obtained. The easiest way to make sure that this response was what the British wanted was to utilize those leaders that were sympathetic to British interests to influence their supporters. This meant that many upper-class leaders and tribal leaders would be used by the British to bring the vote in their favor. The answer that the British supported was that the three provinces would be united under Arab rule, with the subtext being that the Arab leadership would at least be somewhat influenced by the British. Even with Wilson's efforts to stack the odds in the British favor, the response to the plebiscite was actually quite mixed. However, in Wilson's final judgment on the results, he would say that, quote, the majority desired no change of regime. A large minority favored an Arab emir under British guidance and control, and that no name we could suggest commanded the acceptance of even a small minority. This response would be used by British leaders in both Baghdad and London to justify their future actions, actions that the people in Mesopotamia would have some problems with, problems that would push them into violence. Thank you for listening this week, and I hope you will join me next episode when we'll talk about that violence that occurred in Iraq in the summer of 1920. This is Carl on his motorcycle. Let's ride till we run out of gas! This is Carl off his motorcycle. Balsa wood is very different than teak. People confuse the two. On his motorcycle. Hey! Check out that view! Off his motorcycle. Let's do puzzles in the break room. On. Look at all that open road! Off. Look how long my fingernails are getting. You're better on your bike. Progressive helps keep you on it. Get a quote in as little as three minutes at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.